0: dreams I see a spot far away nestled in the hills in a land that I love
1: if you will get your geography and turn to a map of the United States you will notice in the extreme northwestern part of Montana a body of water of which probably few North Carolinians have heard I see the
0: candlelight down in the little green valley where morning glory vines are twining round the
1: door. If situated east of the Mississippi, Flathead Lake would undoubtedly be quite famous. But lying as it does in the far northwest and off of the great thoroughfares of travel, it has heretofore been almost unknown except to the government surveyors and Indians. It had long been known that the Flathead country was among the finest valleys of the Rockies. But being somewhat inaccessible, immigration had not found its way into the valley until within the last few months. The projection of the Great Northern Railroad through it last spring was the beginning of the rush into the valley of settlers, prospectors, and the ever present townsite boomers. Since coming to Montana, the principal topic of conversation, it seems to me, has been concerning the Flathead Country and of the rival towns which have sprung up there during the past spring and summer. In spring 1891, a young North Carolinan named Joseph M. Dixon stepped off the northern Pacific at the Missoula Depot and looked around for a familiar face. Dixon came from a blue-blooded Southern Quaker family and attended the prestigious Newgarden Private School and Guilford College in North Carolina. He was determined from a young age to have a political career, but his family's Republican leanings made it impossible for him to achieve his aspirations in his home state after the Civil War.
2: The South was solidly Democratic. They didn't like Republicans a bit. And the North was pretty solidly Republican. Well, here's Joe Dixon. He's a Quaker kid. He loves history. He's a good orator. Would love to get involved in politics, but his family's Quaker and they're associated with Republicans. Not a chance in the world he'd ever get elected in any North Carolina.
1: Dixon had a cousin named Frank Woody who had made the journey from North Carolina to the Missoula Valley some 30 years earlier as one of the founding settlers of Hellgate, the ramshackle little town that preceded Missoula. Woody is recognized as the first operating lawyer in the Montana Territory, and he became a hugely influential figure as Missoula grew, and he was even elected the town's first mayor in 1883.
2: He's well, got a cousin by the name of Frank Woody, who's buried right over there. Okay. Who just got elected? Who just got elected mayor of Missoula, <coughs> Missoula, Montana? And he thinks, where the heck's Missoula, Montana? Well, might be a pretty interesting place for opportunity for a young guy going west. I don't really have a future here in North Carolina, and my cousin just got elected mayor up there.
1: And so, in 1891, at the age of 24, young Joe Dixon accepted an offer from his cousin. Judge Woody, to come out west and work in his
3: office while he studied for the bar. Woody was operating a thriving practice at the time, representing the interest of the Northern Pacific Railroad in the county, and he put Dixon to work as essentially an errand boy who sent messages and collected debts from Woody's clients throughout western Montana. In August 1891, Dixon published a travel log in the newspaper of his alma mater, Guilford College in which he recounts one such debt collection trip from Missoula through the Flathead Valley up to Columbia Falls.
1: A few days since, Judge Woody, a New Garden student of some 35 years ago, I suspect with a view toward giving me a genuine Western experience, asked me how I would like to take a trip up into the Flathead. Said he had some collections for an Eastern firm in the valley, and if I would make the trip, I could start that evening. Of course, I was only too glad to accept so 7 o'clock found me at the depot waiting for the Northern Pacific train. I will confess, I felt some misgivings as recollections of stories came to mind of Western Desperados, whose special delight was in shooting at the feet of an Eastern Tenderfoot just to see him dance. But, as one of the sheriff's deputies was to be company for part of the journey, I felt somewhat reassured.
3: Dixon rode the northern Pacific up to the station at Ravalli on the Flathead Reservation and stayed a night in a hotel until a stagecoach took him north. Describing his first impression of being on the reservation, Dixon wrote, I felt for the first time as if I was in the genuine wild and woolly west. The party boarded the stage in Ravalli at 2 a.m. and by mid-morning crested the big hill by Ronan, revealing the sprawling vista of the south shore of Flathead Lake. Dixon wrote that the scenery was not
1: within the limit of this article to describe, but that a unanimous vote of his traveling party had declared it the prettiest scenery they had ever seen. At the lake shore, an aptly named steamboat waited to take them up north. In a few minutes... We were all aboard, the cables unfastened, and the state of Montana plowed her way across the clear, limpid waters of the Flathead. I'm John Hooks, and I'm Matt Newman, and this is Land Grab. there, listener, and welcome back to Land Grab. We're back with the final five chapters in our deep dive into the interlocking history of the Missoula Mercantile Company and the indigenous tribes of the Flathead Indian Reservation in western Montana at the turn of the 20th century. The first half of our show was all about setting up that 20th century Specifically, we looked at Montana's growth as a regional corporate oligarchy where local monopolies controlled everything within their territories. We had Andrew Hammond in the Missoula Mercantile Company in Missoula, William Andrews Clark in Butte, Marcus Daly in Anaconda, and Samuel T. Hauser in Helena being the ones we talked about the most. We looked at how they competed with each other and collaborated, mainly in the formation of the Montana Improvement Company and the construction of the Northern Pacific Railroad and the Anaconda Smelter. We spent a lot of time focusing on the Missoula Mercantile Company's rise to dominance as Missoula County's corporate overlord. Culminating in its founder, Andrew B. Hammond, leaving Montana after facing a populist backlash and finding himself vulnerable to criminal liability for the improvement company's timber depredations. And throughout all of that coverage of corporate growth, we covered the parallel dispossession of the indigenous Salish, Kootenai, and Ponderay, beginning with the arrival of Lewis and Clark and culminating in the forced removal of the Bitteret Salish in 1891. We also looked at the origins of the U.S. government's assimilation policy towards indigenous people, which was designed to completely destroy indigenous culture in America, by confining tribal people to small subsistence farms on allotments and indoctrinating their children in religious boarding schools. We went through all that stuff in the first half because we think it's crucial to fully understanding what's going to happen in this second half of the show, where we're going to see Montana's regional corporate oligarchies begin to conglomerate and sell out to huge multinationals. We're going to see the mercantile company under the stewardship of Hammond's protege, C.H. McLeod, continue to grow its operation and move into banking and real estate. And we're going to see the tribes begin to rebuild a kind of prosperity on the reservation, just as the business and political elite of Missoula, with the Bitterroot now completely cleared, begin to target the flathead for allotment with their full force. We started this second half of the show with an introduction to Joe Dixon because he is going to be probably the single most consequential individual in the rest of the story, and a really important person to try to understand, someone whose life moves with the times in a fascinating way. To start things off, we're going to pick up with Joe Dixon's early 20s in Missoula. Chapter 6, Savage Habits. To begin, we'll go back to some tape we heard in the intro. The speaker is a man named Bob Brown. He's pretty well known in Montana. He was a former state legislator and secretary of state, and he ran for governor in 2004. This tape is from Stories and Stones, which is an annual historical tour through the Missoula Cemetery. So as a nice visual touch, he's giving these remarks in period clothing from Dixon's gravesite.
2: So he came up to Montana and studied law in Woody's office. Woody was a lawyer. And he arrived here in 1891. 1892, he passed the bar examination. This is Joe Dixon.
3: Joe Dixon passed the bar in 1892, and his early years as a lawyer in Missoula were full of wheeling and dealing. He'd been pretty firmly embedded in the town's social elite since his arrival, stationed as he was in Frank Woody's office, which was a regular place of business and discussion. He very quickly became known to other important people like Frank Warden, C.H. McLeod, and Jack Keith.
1: We went through the records of Dixon's early years as a lawyer, and the sense you get is he mainly just acted as a middleman, for various real estate sales around the county. He knew a lot of people. So if you were a businessman from Idaho, for example, who was interested in buying a small bankrupt copper mine or lumber yard or something, you could hit up Joe and he'd put you in touch with the right people and drop the papers and walk away with like 5%. His records are also hilariously littered with telegrams from people he owed money to who never seemed to find Joe in the office when they came calling.
2: 1893, he becomes deputy county attorney. 1894, he's elected county attorney. Wow. Just awesome. like that. I mean, heck, he wasn't even 30 years old. And he was a really good public speaker and really effective before juries. So he made a lot of money early on as a lawyer. I mean, just rose up like a meteor.
1: As Joe Dixon was climbing the social ladder, Andrew Hammond was moving out of Montana and putting his nephew, C.H. Herb McLeod, in charge of the Montana businesses. McLeod's priority in the 1890s was to dissolve, on paper at least, the mercantile monopoly octopus that had become such a target for populist ire and government investigation. The perfect opportunity was provided when, starting in 1897, Marcus Daly began negotiations to buy the big Blackfoot Milling Company.
4: That, uh, after Hammond went here, went down to Oregon and set up down there, you're familiar with that?
2: I'm getting into it. I know he went to Oregon yeah. then in California. No, San Francisco. He hadn't
4: been in Oregon very long before he was running two sawmills and stealing appropriating timber there. Right,
2: yeah. Yeah, he had bribed the senator from work Oh, I know.
4: <laughs> and then he goes to California. Well, the uh, Hammond left, and he told C.H., okay, it's your baby now, you run it. And one thing about it, Daly wants to buy that mill out there at Bonner.
1: Daly had been expanding his lumber operations in the Bitterroot since his battle for dominance with Hammond and set his sights on controlling the entire industry now that his former adversary had left. But when he reached out to Hammond in Oregon and offered an initial $500,000, Hammond curtly rebuffed him, sending him back to Montana with express orders that he was to deal with McLeod from now on and adding $50,000 to the asking price. He
4: Eventually, uh, Marcus had to finally deal, or Daly had to finally deal with, McLeod. And he bought the mill. And according to Walter McLeod, he said, I'm not sure what it was finally, but he said, I think my dad told me he got in a little over a million dollars.
1: This is Ty Robinson, who was the in-house counsel for the mercantile starting in the 1940s. He's speaking in an oral history with our other friend Greg Gordon.
4: But that indicated that, that while... To me it indicated while Hammond had left Missoula, he was still a controller and he's had his hand in the operation enough here. And he was pushing this nephew to take care of everything, but see that you get it done. And the next thing to do is sell that newspaper, which McLeod did.
1: Offloading the Blackfoot mill was important for a number of reasons. The sale further removed Hammond and the Merck operation from liability in the Improvement Company's timber depredations, which still threatened the founders with indictment. And it injected a huge pile of cash into Hammond's West Coast businesses. The sale also represented a concession that Marcus Daly had defeated Hammond in their contest for dominance of the state timber industry. And Daly now had the monopoly that Hammond once enjoyed. But moving out of timber allowed the Merck to move into other industries, like real estate, banking, and ranching, while maintaining their dominance as the only wholesale grocery supplier in the county, who either owned all the other small mercantiles outright, or effectively controlled them through accrued debt. Remember that under Hammond, the Merck operation would place figurehead leaders from Hammond's extended family in charge of the different enterprises to try and obscure the fact that Hammond ran them all himself. With Hammond gone, McLeod and Jack Keith, another Hammond family member who ran the First National Bank, then set about expanding this patronage circle of faux-ownership to include friends and other prominent Missoulians outside of the New Brunswick clan. So throughout this time, they were always casting about for like-minded go-getters who they could bring into the fold. And it was into this incestuous Missoula business world that Joe Dixon was
3: cutting his teeth at the same time. (laughs) Dixon made his first official connection into the Merck world a few years into his law practice when he married Caroline Warden, daughter of Frank Warden. Remember that Warden had left his partnerships with the Higgins family and hitched himself to the mercantile operation as early as 1887 when he joined as one of the incorporators of the Missoula and Bitterroot Valley Railroad. The marriage also brought Dixon into the new Brunswickian inner circle of the mercantile management, as his brother-in-law became F.T. Sterling, who was the secretary of the Merc, and whose own brother, A.M. Sterling, owned the mercantile outpost with Jesse Sears in Ronan. Both the Sterling and Sears families came out with the other Hammond relatives after the railroad deal in 1881. Dixon's name also pops up in records from the 1895 reopening of the federal government's investigation into the MIC timber indictments, when he represented some of the rank-and-file Blackfoot Mill employees who came under pressure from the investigation. He'd done a lot in his first five years in Montana, but once Dixon was fully mixed up within the Merck patronage system, his star went on an even more meteoric rise, and he was elected to the state legislature in 1900. That same year, he was also fully welcomed into the Merck's inner circle when he was selected to take over the Missoulian, which Hammond had bought for the state capital election in 1894.
1: How this Missoulian purchase worked was that Jack Keith at the First National Bank arranged a loan that gave Dixon the funds to purchase the newspaper off of the Missoula Publishing Company. But since the First National Bank and the Missoula Publishing Company were both subsidiaries of the mercantile enterprise, they were essentially just giving Dixon some of their own money to ceremonially buy one of their holdings off of them. The Merc simply moved some money around between companies and kept running the paper day to day, while Dixon just collected a paycheck and served as a figurehead owner and editor. The Merck retained control of the paper while making it look like they had sold it to an independent outsider. This strategy of disguising ownership will pretty much be how the mercantile company rolls from now on, preferring to lurk into the shadows as much as possible, providing the resources and taking most of the profits, but doing so out of the public eye.
2: And uh, he uh, uh, bought the Missoulian in 1900... Uh, and had a fair amount of other property. He was a shrewd investor. Was elected to the state legislature in uh, in 1900. Served one two-year term there, and immediately went into Congress. So he'd been in Montana for 10 years. Came out here to become involved in politics. Back in Washington D.C. 10 years later.
5: <laughs>
2: Which is what he wanted. It, was, it was exactly what he wanted. It was very goal-oriented, obviously, and so.
1: When you see how much of a fixture he became in this world, it's not really a surprise that Joseph Dixon was then elected to the state legislature in 1900 and became Montana's sole congressman in 1902 in a mirror image to Thomas Carter's electoral rise in 1888.
2: Uh, and and uh, he was pretty successful as a congressman. He was, uh, uh, t- played a key role in establishing Glacier Park. And uh, uh, he also was, was associated with the white settlement of uh, Indian reservations. And that was kind of controversial, especially with the Native American people. The white people in Western Montana saw the advantage of settling on the Flathead Reservation as a real advantage to him, to them. But it was it remains controversial to this day.
1: We'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we're going to try and fill in some gaps and look at what was happening on the ground in Flathead Reservation. We left things off there in the aftermath of the resettlement of Chief Charlo's Salish Band on the reservation after their forced removal from the Bitterroot Valley. The American government and white settlers had been plotting to open up the Flathead since 1855, when Isaac Stevens secretly wrote in Article 6 of the Hellgate Treaty, which said the reservation could be allotted along the same terms as the Treaty with the Omaha's of 1853. But even with that hidden article in hand, there were still numerous obstacles in the way to fully opening the reservation. But just as Joe Dixon was first arriving in Montana as a young post-grad in 1891, those obstacles began falling down, one by one. More on that after the break.
6: It it kills me that my hometown is named Dixon after this guy because he was a scoundrel. He was just an out-and-out scoundrel. And um, and it grieves me that his, um, his bust is in the rotunda at the state capitol.
1: Hey there, Land Grab listener. John here. I just wanted to hop on and remind y'all that Land Grab is supported by listener donations. Our friends at the Montana Mint help us publish and publicize the show, but the production is really just mad and I. We got a really great response after we put out our first episode, and we're really grateful to everybody that chipped in and helped us realize this first season. We want to keep making Land Grab, as long as there's an audience and a market for it. To make the show at the level of quality that we think it deserves is a very labor-intensive and time-consuming process. And listener support allows us to put in the time and effort that is required. So if you want to help us grow Land Grab and make more of the show, the most helpful thing would be to chuck in a buck or two which you can do at landgrabpodcast.com slash donate. Again, that is landgrabpodcast.com, all one word, slash donate. If contributing to the show isn't an option for you, there are still plenty of ways that you can help us out by spreading the word about the show. Tell your friends, recommend it to every tourist you run into, and you can share our stuff on social media, we're at Land Grab Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. That sort of stuff really helps draw more eyes and ears to the show. It's been so nice to see the kind of response that the show has been getting. And again, we really want to thank everybody who has helped us so far. But for now, let's get back to the show.
3: Welcome back. Before we fully dive into the push to allot the Flathead Reservation specifically, let's take a second to go into some detail about what exactly this allotment policy we're talking about was. It's something we've referenced throughout the show, but have yet to fully get into the weeds about. In short, allotment was the mechanism by which the government carried out its assimilationist economic policies against indigenous people, Remember that the assimilation policy came in response to the government's need to move on from the financial and reputational costs of the so-called Indian Wars and find a more palatable option. The basic fundamental principles of allotment as government policy were laid out in an 1885 report by then Commissioner of Indian Affairs, John DeWitt Clinton Atkins. The main goal for the government and its relations with the indigenous people, Atkins thought, should be to transform indigenous cultures until they fit what he called the Jeffersonian values of Yemen husbandry. In his report, Atkins equated the Yemen lifestyle with the highest form of civilized society and suggests that forcing that lifestyle upon indigenous people would actually be a benevolent act of charity.
1: It requires no seer to foretell or foresee the civilization of the Indian race as a result naturally deductible from a knowledge and practice upon their part of the art of agriculture, for the history of agriculture among all people and in all countries intimately connects it with the highest intellectual and moral development of man. Historians, philosophers, and statesmen freely admit that civilization as naturally follows the improved arts of agriculture as vegetation follows the genial sunshine and the shower, and that those races who are in ignorance of agriculture are also ignorant of almost everything else. The Indian constitutes no exception to this political maxim. Steeped as his progenitors were, and as more than half of the race now are, in blind ignorance, the devotees of abominable superstitions and the victims of idleness and thriftlessness, the absorbing query which the hopelessness of his situation, if left to his own guidance, suggests to the philanthropist, and particularly to a great Christian nation like ours, is to know how to relieve him from this state of dependence and barbarism, and to direct him in paths that will eventually lead him to the light and liberty of American citizenship.
3: Atkins' recommendation was that the government should break up the communal land holdings of the reservations and stick each tribal member with 160 to 320 acres of land, and then, crucially, the government could sell off the remaining excess reservation land to white settlers at rock-bottom prices under the Homestead Act. The government would then turn over all social functions on the reservations to religious missionary organizations. Atkins said the government would also control tribal members' allotted lands for 25 years, after which a fee patent for the land would be issued, and the tribal member would become a U.S. citizen and begin paying taxes.
1: Now, I think it's important here to give you some information about Atkins' background so you can understand where he and this policy is really coming from ideologically, and what he really means with all this lofty talk about agriculture and civilization. Atkins was a wealthy plantation owner in Tennessee who was elected to the U.S. Congress in 1856 before joining the Confederate Army at the outset of the Civil War and representing Tennessee in the first and second Confederate Congresses. In the dying days of the war, he even presented a plan to the Confederate government that they should purchase 100,000 enslaved people and force them into service in the Confederate Army. After the war, he returned to Congress and was appointed Commissioner of Indian Affairs in 1885 by Grover Cleveland. So when you look at the ideological background of people like Atkins who were so pivotal to writing and formulating this policy, I think it's clear to see what the philosophical root of this policy really is. The express intent of the allotment policy was to completely eradicate tribal people as a distinct type through the breakup of communal land holdings, economic individualization, and cultural assimilation. Atkins stated so clearly in his initial report, summing up the policy by saying, every step taken every move made every suggestion offered everything done in reference to the indians should be with the view of impressing upon them that this is the policy which has been permanently decided upon by the government in reference to their management they must abandon tribal relations they must give up their superstitions they must forsake their savage habits and learn the arts of civilization. They must learn to labor and must learn to rear their families, as white people do, and to know more of their obligations to the government and society. In a word, they must learn to work for a living.
7: The Indian had absolutely no concept of the private ownership property to him all land was communally owned to be used by everyone but this concept yielded to an even deeper concept which was religious the land was God's and for the great spirits and it had been loaned to man only not for him to own but for him to use And that being the case, this land should be treated with great care. It was on loan from God. You did not own it. None of the treaties that we made, 370 of them, ever recognized this spiritual aspect of the land upon which the Indian lived. Private ownership, that's what the treaties were based on. And saying to the Indians, you will, by God, become a property owner or else. Up until 1887, the government yielded on one point. The land on these reservations was owned by the tribe. It was communally owned. This ends with the passage of one of the most atrocious pieces of legislation which ever passed through the Congress of the United States. The year is 1887, The legislation is the General Allotment Act of that year. The General Allotment Act, commonly called the Dawes Act, after its author.
1: That, of course, is our old friend and eminent Montana historian, K. Ross Toole.
7: The time had come to assimilate the Indian, to get him into the mainstream of American life.
3: The Allotment Act made many of Atkins' recommendations a reality. Each
7: Indian on the reservation would choose 160 acres. Notice the 160 acres again. The eastern concept, the economic unit, which on these reservations it most assuredly was not. He would choose 160 acres, and if in four years he hadn't chosen it, it would be chosen for him, his allotment. By the agent. I might add that while he now owned 160 acres, he couldn't sell it. That was forbidden in the Dawes Act. That's an interesting concept of ownership, isn't it? You own it, but you can't sell it.
3: Those lands would be held in trust for 25 years. Afterward, the title holder would pay taxes on it and get the right to vote.
7: Now, after allotment, and this is the critical part of the Dawes Act, after allotment, All extra land, after every Indian had picked his 160 acres, all extra land was to be sold to whites. The Flathead Reservation up here alone lost a million acres that way. Land sold to whites. If you wonder when you drive up to Flathead Lake why you don't see Indians, why you see whites, that's why. The General Allotment Act of 18 87.
3: The government could then pull out of its social and economic support obligations and let the twin arms of private enterprise and religious missionary groups swoop in to fill the vacuum. As the Allotment Act worked its way through the legislative process, it encountered essentially no opposition, and pretty much everyone involved was blatant about the intent of the law. A Colorado congressman named James Belford said the law was needed to allow white capitalists to profit off of natural resources on reservations, saying, An idle and thriftless race of savages cannot be permitted to guard the treasure vaults of the nation. In the Senate, Massachusetts Senator Henry Dawes, who was the Allotment Act's sponsor and the person who would end up sending Henry Carrington to the Bitterroot in a few years, remarked that the act was a matter of necessity, saying that indigenous people living their traditional ways represented a constant menace to white society, and they must be fitted to civilized life and absorbed into it. The Allotment Act guided government policy for 47 years, from 1887 to 1934. In this half-century, indigenous nations across the country had almost 100 million acres stolen by the government, Roughly two thirds of the territory they had left, with much of it sold to white settlers.
7: It was an abominable piece of legislation. And that was the policy of the United States government for 47 long
3: years. The General Allotment Act laid out the basic processes by which allotment would occur, but it contained no mechanism for the opening of specific reservations. Sorting out the details was left up to additional, independent acts of Congress for each reservation and the local representatives that drafted the bill. In the case of the Flathead Reservation, numerous obstacles stood in the way of opening the reservation. But just as Dixon's astronomic rise brought him to Washington, those obstacles had basically all fallen down. Two of the biggest factors
1: keeping the Flathead Reservation unallotted were that the business and political community of Missoula was largely distracted with opening up the Bitterroot, and that for more than a decade, starting in 1877, Peter Ronan was the Bureau of Indian Affairs' Indian agent on the Flathead. The Indian agent was a really powerful position on the reservation at this time, controlling the use of federal funds and the distribution of rations and resources while also acting as the main law enforcement officer and go-between for the tribes and the local and federal government. Ronan was a really prominent, influential figure in the whole county, but his record as agent was mixed. He was an ardent assimilationist who worked with the Jesuits to strictly ban traditional practices and shepherd young people into boarding schools but he was also a strict believer in maintaining the integrity of the bounds of the reservation and upholding the sovereignty of the tribes as much as possible. And he strenuously objected to efforts to open the reservation, writing that there was no need to throw the lands open unless the cupidity of the white race produced a struggle for the land, of which they had no necessity. The indian agent was a political appointee and hammond himself had intervened in 1889 to maintain ronan's appointment over a crony of thomas carter that the new congressman had promised the position to but in 1891 the salish were finally forced out of the bitter and missoula's eyes turned north and then ronan died in 1893 and after him the mercantile machine appointed loyal pro allotment men to the role. First, Joseph Carter from 1893 to 1898, when a man named William Henry Smead took over. Smead is a really prominent figure in this episode, and he was, to borrow an adage from our friend K. Ross Toole, as crooked as a corkscrew. He had been a Republican state legislator in the years before his appointment. A position he got with Merck backing, and in 1895 he had tried to pass a legislative measure forcing open the reservation. The railroad had already started to permeate the borders of the reservation and bring in travelers and traders along its route, but before allotment, the borders of the reservation were more strictly enforced, and within their confines, the Indian agent had domain over his own fiefdom, controlling government rations. Granting permits for timber and grazing, selectively enforcing the law, and interfacing between the tribes and the federal bureaucracy. These agents, especially Smead, also used their power within the reservation to further their own business interests, as we'll dive into in the last part of this
3: episode. Pro-allotment agents were a powerful tool but they could not overcome the lack of a clear treaty agreement with the tribes to allot the reservation without tribal consent. Remember from all the way back in the first episode that Isaac Stevens had secretly inserted a clause called Article 6 into the Hellgate Treaty that said the reservation could be opened based on the terms of the 1853 treaty with the Omaha tribe. But the relevant section of the Omaha Treaty only says that the government could give allotments to those tribal members who were willing to avail themselves of the privilege and the tribes on the Flathead had always been staunchly opposed. Congress sent commissions to the reservation in 1896 and again in 1901 to try and negotiate a deal to allot and open the reservation, but both times the tribes refused. The commission in 1901 negotiated with the tribes for six months, and records of these negotiations really give a clear insight to the thoughts of tribal leaders and the conviction of their resistance.
1: Charlo, now with his people on the flathead, had the broken promises and the botched execution of the starvation winners and the forced removal of his people from the Bitterroot fresh in his mind and refused to take the government at their word and said he wouldn't sell a foot of the reservation. Summing up his opposition, Charlo said, We have been mistreated and so concluded not to sell any part of the reservation. Our tribes and other tribes have been deceived by the government, and for this reason, we have no confidence that we will be treated right, judging by the past. And there's a really poignant moment where Charlotte, talking about the undelivered promises of the removal agreement with Carrington and the starvation winters of 1889 and 1890, says... We have not got pay for our lands in the Bitterroot Valley. If these things had been paid for, I would have had a larger band. Chief Isaac of the Kootenai also forcefully stated the opposition of his people, saying, Today and afterwards, I don't want to hear any more stories. My body is full of your people's lies. You told me I was poor and needed money, but I am not poor. What is valuable to a person is land, the earth, water, trees, and all these belong to us. Don't think I am poor. I don't consider myself poor because I don't need anything. We haven't any more land than we need, so you had better buy from somebody else. 46 years ago, we made a deal with people who talked the same language that you do. That is all I have to say. You had better hunt some people who want money more than we do. While they were frustrated in the negotiations, pro-allotment interests still chipped away at the issue. On the ground in Missoula County, There were two sides to this, and they were both orchestrated within the Missoula Merck operation and centered around the man we introduced at the start of this episode,
3: Joseph Dixon. The first side was a media propaganda campaign that ran through Dixon's newspaper. In June 1901, the Missoulian ran an editorial lamenting what appeared to be an increase in homesteaders settling lands on the Canadian side of the 49th parallel instead of in Montana. The capacity of the western part of the United States to provide new homes for settlers is rapidly diminishing. In fact, in general terms, it can be said that there are no more chances for home seekers who do not possess capital. The Canadian government is taking advantage of this condition of affairs to the detriment of the West. Later in 1903, at the same time Dixon, now in Congress, was trying to pass a bill to allot the reservation, his paper ran an editorial prescribing allotment of the reservation as the only solution to Montana's nascent housing crisis. There is room on the reservation for thousands of settlers. The surplus lands are estimated at 2 million acres, a great deal of which is timber, grazing, and mineral, but there is a large amount of valuable land which can be transformed into productive farms never mind that there was not actually anywhere close to 2 million acres on the reservation. The editorial also projected a surety that the opening was simply a matter of time. The opening of the reservation may be delayed, but it will come, and the sooner the better. The Indian must take his place with the white man. He must sink or swim, survive or perish with the pale face. The natural owners of the soil may object to the advance of civilization, but they cannot stop it.
1: Everyone knew what the inherent purpose of allotment was. Those editorials, J.D.C. Atkins' report, congressional speeches, religious groups, general popular sentiment, and the actual text of the Allotment Act itself all spell it out pretty explicitly. Indigenousness itself was to be eradicated. Land bases broken up, sovereignty destroyed, culture forgotten. Indigenous people were now to do nothing more or less than literally transform into white farmers. But even at the time, they still needed a more sanitized way to describe what they wanted done in order to justify it. That's where all this talk of civilizing indigenous people comes from. To paint what was being done as a virtuous act a benevolent America bestowing its wondrous values on an uncivilized race. Allotment called for both the cultural and economic assimilation of indigenous people. So assimilationist propaganda had to portray indigenous people as both culturally and economically backwards and threatening. We're going to talk more about the cultural side of this, and the influence of religious missionary organizations and boarding schools in the next episode, and focus on the economic side of things today. The cornerstone of pro-allotment economic propaganda, both nationally and locally in Missoula County, was that the tribes were underdeveloping their lands to an unacceptable degree, that the valuable resources on the reservation needed to be opened To the wondrous powers of industry and agriculture, the tribes needed to be disbanded and their individual members assimilated into American culture through the workforce.
5: As time passed, the non-Indian even became aggressive over the existence of the reservation. The fact, they would look up and say, you know, look at all that wonderful farming land and here's all these Indians up here and they don't know what to do with it. And so there became a a movement, an attitude of the settlers that uh, that's an awful waste of land. We should be getting that reservation. It should be opened for settlement so some good use could be made of the land.
1: But the actual reality on the reservation at this time ran in direct opposition to this myth that was created.
7: The cattle industry in Montana is much older than most people believe.
1: Indigenous communities had been farming and ranching in western Montana since the first arrival of the Jesuits in the 1840s. And in the decades before allotment, the tribes on the Flathead Reservation had developed a successful system of farming and ranching through an
3: open-range communal land use system. By the turn of the century, there were tens of thousands of horses and cows in tribal herds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of stock and produce being shipped out of the reservation.
8: The Confederated Tribes were engaging in agriculture. Nearly 30,000 acres in cultivation in 1903. There were some pictures that I ran across in terms of working for the tribe at one time that were like 1901, 1902 Western Montana Fair, there were crops on display at the fair from the Flathead Reservation. 1904 Indian cattle numbered 28,000 head. At the same time the horse herds on the reservation were 20,000 plus. Obviously The Indian families at the time were engaging in agriculture. They were engaging in commercial cattle operation. In
3: 1886, Ronan reported tribal farmers brought fruit trees into the valley, growing the first plums, cherries, and apples in the region that's still famous for its fruit. Michel Pablo and Charles Allard had even built up the world's largest bison herd, essentially preserving the animal from extinction in America. The tribes were definitely engaged in a form of capitalistic endeavor, but it was a system built on an equitable, if informal, distribution of profits. While only a small number of tribal members achieved objective prosperity or excess, the overall output of the tribes generated enough that everyone had their basic needs met, and they were essentially self-sustaining.
5: The tribal people that had taken to farming were doing pretty well for themselves. They had nice farms, they had good workable land, and they also had the promise of the irrigation system. And all of this lent to success as such. Not a corporate-type success, but individually. A number of the tribal people were doing well.
1: That voice there is Ron Terrialt. He's a former tribal chairman of the CSKT. And he's speaking in an interview in a documentary called Place of the Falling Waters by Roy Big Crane and Thomson Smith. We talked a little bit about Place of the Falling Waters. It's a great two-part documentary that talks about a lot of these issues we've covered as they relate to the construction of the Kerr Dam. If you want to learn more about this stuff, I would definitely recommend watching it. It's available on the SKC TV YouTube. There's also some tape in there from Dan Decker, who we also heard from in the first half of the show, giving a presentation on the 100th anniversary of the Flathead Allotment. Dan is a tribal member who has served as a lawyer for the CSKT. I think when you look at these two realities, the myth and the truth, what's clear to see is that allotment was a reaction to the fact that the tribes had the nerve to try and build prosperity for themselves and not the entrenched ruling elite. Remember that back in his 1885 report, J.D.C. Atkins summed up the allotment policy by saying about indigenous people, in short, they must learn to work for a living. But when you really look at the truth of this policy, I think it's obvious that what Atkins really meant by that was, they must learn to work for us for a living. We're going to take another break here. And when we come back, we're going to look at the other side of the plan to open up the flathead. As Joe Dixon, the legislator, maneuvers his bill through Congress. And the mercantile makes incursions into the flathead to position itself to clean up once the reservation goes on sale.
7: It's an interesting land grab.
1: Landgrab is proud to be part of the Montana Mint Podcast Network. Be sure to check out the Montana Mint's other shows, which include Montana Murders, Notorious and Unsolved, which I hosted with author Brian D'Ambrosio. In that show, we dig into some of the most interesting murder mysteries in Montana history. They also have the Grizz Fan Podcast, the number one podcast this side of Montana, focused on all things Grizz football. The Montana Mint Sports Pod is a weekly show focused on all things Big Sky Conference. And the Montana Trivia Championship is a game show devoted entirely to our great state. You can get all of these shows on all of your major podcast apps, and you can check out the Montana Mint on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more.
3: Welcome back. In the last part of the episode today, we're going to catch back up with Joe Dixon. We left Joe as a freshman congressman in Washington, and we're going to look at his first term here as he maneuvers his allotment bill through Congress. But we're also going to look at a concurrent series of events on the ground in Missoula and the Flathead as the Missoula Mercantile moves its enterprise onto the reservation and gets itself into the ideal position to profit off of the changes opening the reservation would bring. It's important to say here
1: that the push to open reservations generally and the flathead locally was a very popular thing, and the action to do it was more of a broad social movement than a concerted conspiracy. Essentially, the whole white American society was behind it, and as we've seen, pretty much every corner of that society was involved in directly advocating for and looking for a way to profit off of allotment. But it still required a specific piece of legislation to get done, and getting that legislation passed did require a level of organized planning among a select elite few, who all happened to be part of the same enterprise. And, as we're going to lay out here, when you look at these two things, the passage of the bill in the incursions of the mercantile, and see how much they directly overlap and influence each other, you'll see what amounts to the closest thing we have to an organized plot to throw the reservation open. In 1902, the same year Dixon was elected, the mercantile took over the general store in the reservation town of St. Ignatius. C.H. McLeod installed another New Brunswick relative named George Beckwith to run the store. They would go on to repeat the practice in other town sites and encircle the reservation with stores in Ronan, Poulsen, Plains, Kalispell, and others. A.M. Sterling and Jesse Sears, two other Hammond extended family members, started the outpost in Ronan.
9: Um, What did your father do? Well, he mm-hmm. uh, uh, worked for the Missoula Mercantile Company until 1902, and then uh, there uh, was a store in St. Ignatius that owed the Missoula Mercantile Company more money than they could pay. So C.H. sent my father out to St. Ignatius to take over that store. So that's how you got to St. Ignatius? That's how I got to St. Ignatius. Uh-huh.
7: Well, the Missoula Mercantile Company, after a few years, uh, opened a, uh, a wholesale grocery. And uh, all the small stores up the Bitterroot and on what we now call the reservation, down towards Finchtown
8: the McCord Lane.
1: The voices there belong to Jack Beckwith. He's George's son, and he's speaking in an oral history. We also heard Cliff Hammond-Rittenour, who we've heard from before, speaking in an oral history with our very own Kay Ross Tool. The reservation stores began instituting an extremely predatory crediting practice, wherein they would front tribal members, who largely had little to no concept of Western financial lending practices, large amounts of goods on credit, encouraging them to build up a substantial debt to the mercantile.
9: door that uh, my father had there uh, the Indians that came in to trade uh, but very few of them could speak any Indian at all but they all uh, trusted my father and uh, they uh, all had cattle. Now excuse me for a minute you say they they couldn't speak English is that what you meant? Yes but they trusted your father okay and they had cattle and uh, they, they had cattle. And, uh, of course, there was no bank there, mm-hmm. and they'd bring their money in to my father. And, uh, of course, he would keep track of it uh, in the conventional way, but to give them something, some evidence of how much they had, he started giving them nails, and the 60-penny nail was worth $60, and the 40-penny nail was $40, and so on down. and. The, uh was the Indians could come in and buy all the nails they wanted. And he had, well, many, many, many thousands of dollars uh, that they trusted him with. And uh, he had them, uh, the only thing that they had in evidence was the nails, but he never once had an Indian try to run an extra nail in on him. They were all as honest as got Uh Uh-huh. Well, that's very interesting. I never heard of anything like that
1: before. The Merck also started providing the capital to help these partners form the first banks in many of these communities.
7: An enormous number of banks spread up. We had no banking regulations in Montana to speak of then at all. If you had any money, you could start a bank. Even if you didn't have money, you could start a bank. So banks are piling up all over the place.
1: So the enterprise here is embedding itself into foundational businesses in all of these towns.
3: Then, in early 1903, around the time Dixon was being inaugurated, the Missoula Merck through Sterling and McLeod, bought substantial interests in a Kalispell-based cattle outfit called the Hubbard Cattle Company. The Hubbard Company had been working for years with William Henry Smead, the pro-allotment Indian agent we mentioned earlier to try and clear the reservation of the tribe's open-range horse herds in order to open grazing lands for their own cattle, as well as the new herds they expected to come with the flood of new settlers that would follow the reservation opening. In February 1904, the Anaconda Standard reported on a method local pig farmers had developed for clearing the range of some of the tribe's Cayuse herds. They would buy them and feed them to their hogs. The Standard reported that a man named C.C. Willis from Plains had disposed of more than 500 horses this way, and Alex Dow in Arlee claimed he had made inroads with horse meat canneries in Oregon to sell even more horses to.
1: In the Standard article, the pig farmers claim they purchased all the horses for $1.75 a head, but a few months later, in an official complaint sent to the Interior Secretary, Charlotte and another Salish leader named Kakashe claimed that Agent Smead and Alex Dow had rounded up all the tribe's horses and stolen all of those without brands. Charlo said that the chiefs had tried to stop this rascality, but we were powerless. Smead said he had authority from Washington to round up the horses and take those which were not branded. Many of these unbranded horses belonged to old people and children living on the reservation who had not been able to round up and brand their horses. Eighteen of our headmen tried to stop this roundup of Smead and Dow, but we couldn't stop it. They brought these horses to Alex Dow's field, about 200, and Alex Dow killed them and fed them to his hogs. Agent Smead said he would take the money Dow gave for these horses and divide it up among poor Indians. But none of the poor Indians ever got any of it.
3: In February 1903, as they were continuing to clear the range, Dixon was entering Congress and the Merck was investing in the cattle venture, Smead advertised a grazing lease for 6,400 acres of reservation land and issued permits to the Hubbard Company to graze the land. Almost immediately, tribal ranchers complained that Smead had actually allowed the company to use 40,000 acres more than advertised, as well as ranging his own cattle on the tract. When confronted by his superiors with the allegations, Smead denied ever granting any permits to the Hubbard Company and claimed the personal cattle were not his, but his wife's. Correspondences from the time indicate Smead had a sizable personal herd he had ranged for years on the reservation. And records show he actually issued two permits for the Hubbard Company that month for roughly a thousand head of cattle. William Smead was also in charge of enforcing a new
1: grazing tax that had been imposed, where owners of large herds were required to pay a dollar per head on herds above 100 cattle or horses. Tribal ranchers were initially strongly opposed to the tax, even sending a delegation to Washington in spring 1903 to protest against it. But they ultimately acquiesced, when they learned the tax money would be redistributed as per capita payments among the tribes. And while that tax was ostensibly beneficial to the tribes, Smead was extremely uneven in his enforcement, In November 1903, when a tribal member named Joe Morgeau was delinquent in paying $925, Smead sent 25 army sharpshooters from Fort Missoula and the chief of police to arrest Morgeau and remove him from the reservation until his tax and a fine was paid. In classic Smead fashion, he was chastised by superiors for failing to show up at the arrest himself. That same year that he was so committed to collecting from tribal members, Smead was again accused of impropriety. This time, the accusation came from a Missoula attorney named W.B. Parsons, who represented tribal cattlemen and charged Smead with allowing the Missoula mercantile to range cattle on the reservation for several years without paying a cent in taxes. Smead's defense to his superiors was characteristically farcical. I went to Mr. C.H. McLeod, vice president and general manager of the company, and questioned him in relation to the matter. He replied, We haven't had a head of stock on the Flathead Reservation. We never have had any cattle there and never expect to. If we had a head of cattle there, we would be perfectly willing to pay the grazing tax. I believe Mr. McLeod's statement... He informed me that on a few occasions they may have had mortgage security on some of the reservation cattle, but none at this time. Despite Smead's laughable denial, evidence of a substantial mercantile cattle operation on the reservation was copious, as we've seen, and complaints about the freeloading cattle are peppered throughout the transcripts of the negotiations of the two unsuccessful land session commissions in 1896 and 1901, and the many correspondences sent from tribal members to the Commissioner of Indian Affairs and the Secretary of Interior. And at the same time McLeod was claiming to have no cattle interest on the reservation, he was instructing Beckwith, Sears, and Sterling to begin accepting Indian cattle as repayment on debts. The mercantiles would accept the cattle at a value of $15 a head and then go on to sell them at $37 a head, a process they would continue until the Missoula and Kalispell markets became so saturated with flathead cattle that their value plummeted.
3: In Washington, Dixon spent the first six months of his term worming into the good graces of the Speaker of the House, Joseph Cannon. Dixon relied on a shared Guilford County, North Carolina upbringing, the political influence of McLeod and Hammond, and the good old fashioned sycophancy to become, as a fellow legislator later put it, Cannon's pet. He also made headlines when he called for a giant fence to be built along Montana's Canadian border to keep out Asian immigrants. Dixon and McLeod corresponded constantly while he was in Washington, sending letters and telegrams at least every few days. McLeod spoke for A.B. Hammond in Montana, which still counted for something in Washington. And in November, C.H. McLeod sent Cannon a letter outlining his reasons for allotment, telling the Speaker that opening the reservation will do more to stimulate business in western Montana than anything else possibly can. By the time December rolled around, Dixon had enough clout to float his bill and introduced H.R. 8324, the first Flathead Allotment Act. The bill basically just applied the principles of the General Allotment Act to the Flathead. The reservation would be surveyed, an official tribal enrollment would be carried out, each member would get an assigned allotment, and the rest of the reservation would be opened and sold off under the Homestead Act. But this first
1: version of the bill was unique in one way. In Section 17, it stipulated that the allotment would only be carried out if a majority approval of enrolled members was given. Immediately after introducing the first bill, Dixon wrote Agent Smead, Jack Keith of the First National Bank, his brother-in-law FT Sterling of the Merck, and the Interior Secretary Ethan Hitchcock and asked them to weigh in on his bill. Smead told him he was unlikely to ever get full tribal consent for an allotment, and the bill looked unlikely to succeed in its current form. Dixon also wrote to prominent mixed-race tribal members and asked them to comment fully and freely on the bill, but added that the only thing he didn't want to hear was that they didn't want the reservation opened at all. And then, in January 1904, Secretary Hitchcock responded to Dixon by sending a list of recommendations on the bill to the House Committee on Indian Affairs. Regarding the majority approval provision, Hitchcock said the bill will fully safeguard and protect the rights and interests of the Flathead Indians, so there is no occasion for presenting the matter to the Indians for the purpose of procuring their consent thereto. It is accordingly recommended that said Section 17 be entirely stricken out. But Dixon's bill still died in committee, as did the next two versions he tried to get passed. At this point, as he remarked in a retrospective in 1910, Dixon found himself up a stump on the flathead allotment. In a letter back to Jack Keith, Dixon said that the biggest obstacle is that we have no treaty with them to show that the Indians are willing. Things began to change when Dixon had his attention turned to a recent Supreme Court decision, Lone Wolf versus Hitchcock, that gave Congress unilateral permission to abrogate treaty agreements with indigenous nations if it was acting in the tribes' best interest.
3: With the Lone Wolf decision fresh in his mind, Dixon went into the Library of Congress and read the Hellgate Treaty back through this time seizing on Article 6, which stated the government could dole out allotments along the lines of the Omaha Treaty to those tribal members who were willing to avail themselves of the privilege. The article had been secretly written into the treaty by Isaac Stevens and never adequately explained to the tribes, but Dixon called it the peg he could hang his hat on and set about introducing a new allotment bill. Personal business concerns entered into the legislating as well, in March 1904, while Dixon was working on the final draft of the bill, Smead wrote to him about the lucrative cattle racket, saying, For some time past, Mr. McLeod, Mr. Sterling, and myself had under consideration a business proposition of considerable magnitude, which we not only wish to discuss with you, but also invite you to participate in. Smead advised that McLeod had instructed him to keep the matter in hand, meaning secret, and Dixon did not directly responding to Smead in any surviving correspondence. So while it's not exactly clear the degree to which Dixon got in on the racket, he did find himself in possession of a modest cattle operation in Polson within a short time of receiving the letter. Dixon even drafted a provision of the allotment bill with his brother-in-law, and Merck Secretary F.T. Sterling, that would give traders on the reservation preference rights in selecting surplus lands. That provision ultimately did not make it into Dixon's final bill, but it didn't matter. The Merck was making money hand over fist on cattle, and Dixon found his golden goose in the obscure Article 6 clause Isaac Stevens had scurrilously inserted into the Hellgate Treaty. On February 11, 1904,
1: Joseph Dixon introduced H.R. 12231, his fourth and final Flathead Allotment Act. On St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, The House Committee on Indian Affairs finally gave its approval to this version of the act, citing Article 6, the Lone Wolf decision, and Secretary Hitchcock's assurances that allotment was in the tribe's best interests as its justification. Armed with enough slack and legislative leeway to pull off the land grab over the vehement objections of the tribe, the House of Representatives passed the bill on April 2nd 1904. Immediately after passing the bill, Dixon telegraphed McLeod to tell him the good news and instructed him to fire up the mercantile machine and whip Montana Senators into action to usher it through the upper chamber. The bill had a relatively easy passage through the Senate, and the only time any objection was brought up, our old friend Henry Teller, who is now a Senator for Colorado, rose up to quash the objections. And on April 23rd, 1904, President Theodore Roosevelt signed the Flathead Allotment Act into law, remarking that it was the fairest Indian bill he had ever seen. In
8: 1904, we were lucky enough, or unfortunate enough, as the case may be, to get our very own allotment act. Heads of families got 160 acres, members of families and wives got 80. Once that happened, then the other provision of the Flathead Allotment Act came in. That dastardly provision that people don't want to really talk about.
1: That voice there again is Dan Decker.
8: What happened to us when all of those Indians counted and got a piece of property the rest of that 1.25 million acres would be declared surplus. Now remember the original promise was for the exclusive use and benefit of the tribes. Would
6: be declared surplus and could be opened
8: for homesteading.
6: And so we reserved this re- reservation, 3.2 million acres, close to 3.3, um, and we reserved it for ourselves for as long as the grass grows and the winds will Okay, we our traditional homeland here is about 20 million acres, and uh, but we reserved this heartland for ourselves. Allotment came along. We did not want allotment, but non-Indian, non-Indian people were seeing this lush valley that we all live around and they wanted it. This was ours. And we gave up a lot to get it.
1: We also heard Steve Lozar, a tribal anthropologist who we interviewed for this project and who you also heard in earlier episodes.
6: So when the uh, the allotment Act was pushed through by, by, uh, Dixon, and, um, it, it, it kills me that my hometown is named Dixon after this guy because he was a scoundrel. He was just an out-and-out out scoundrel. And um, it, it grieves me that his, um, his bust is in the rotunda at the state capitol. Okay? Um, and, uh, but he was the one that pushed it through. And even though we didn't want it, it's what happened to us. It happened to us for that land grab that was this valley in particular, this fine farmland. But it happened all across the country, to all the reservations.
1: In the aftermath of the Hellgate Treaty and the removal of the Bitterroot Salish, the tribes on the Flathead Reservation had been rebuilding their communities, using the two most valuable assets at their disposal, land and cattle to begin to recoup some level of prosperity for themselves. And when you look at the way this Flathead Allotment Act gets passed, with the murk on the ground in Montana, moving itself into position one step ahead of everything in Washington, it's obvious what the whole point of it all was. To open up a new market. To bleed the tribe's newfound prosperity dry. The whole point, in effect and intention... Of the way the allotment process played out was to create an excuse for the white community to move in and steal as much indigenous wealth and land as possible. Government underdevelopment and corporate pilfering had rendered the tribe largely impoverished and without obvious systematic means to improve their situation. Couple that with cultural differences between indigenous and white communities and you have the perfect recipe for the propaganda that would rhetorically justify the theft. Everything was done on a governmental and social level to mire the tribes in poverty and handicap their ability to sustain themselves. But even in the face of this, the tribes still managed to use the two biggest resources at their disposal to become self-sustaining and to meet the basic needs of the whole community. But this ran against the current of the story that was being told to justify the impending white settlement. So the white community, with the Merc Enterprise as the vanguard, moved to undermine the hard-won self-sufficiency of the tribes, to bring their self-fulfilling prophecy to its inevitable conclusion.
3: When Dixon returned to Missoula for the first time after passing the bill, in May 1904, the town pulled out all the stops for the returning hero. The Missoulians said the city presented the appearance it usually does on the 4th of July, American flag bunting decorated the streets and the storefronts, and more than 1,000 Missoulians waited to welcome Dixon at the train station. When he arrived, Dixon acknowledged the crowd before joining in a parade down Higgins Avenue as a thousand more Missoulians waved him by. That evening, a grand party was held on the Missoula Courthouse lawn, celebrating their congressman and his allotment act. The Missoulian again wrote that
1: arc lights had been strung amid the trees in the yard and lighted in the early evening. The American flag was everywhere in evidence. The bandstand and the speaker stand were covered with the red, white, and blue. The trunks of the trees were hidden by the national colors, while from the courthouse and every available place in the yard, the national emblem was flying. 5,000 people gathered on the courthouse lawn to hear Dixon give an address. Joining him on stage was a cadre of prominent citizens, State Senator Ed Donlin, the president of U.M., Thomas Marshall, the Merck's lawyer, the assistant U.S. attorney, First National Bank President Jack Keith, C.H. McLeod, and William Smead. Thomas Marshall actually introduced Dixon to the crowd, saying that never before in the history of the United States had a young congressman from an un- influential state like Montana accomplished so much in their first term. The Missoulian reported that pandemonium broke loose when Dixon took the stage and the crowd gave him a five-minute standing ovation. Once the applause subsided, the paper reported on the congressman's brief remarks this way. Mr. Dixon began by saying that he was glad to get home among his friends again, and that a reception like the one he had received was one that made a man's blood tingle with joy and gladness to know that he lived in a community where such a greeting was extended. He briefly reviewed some of the measures he had been instrumental in getting through Congress, dwelling particularly on the reservation bills, and in the good which would result for Montana in the opening of these large tracks for settlement.
3: That's going to be where we end things for this chapter. To wrap things up and lead into where we head in the next episode, shortly after the bill was passed, the controversies caught up with Agent Smead, and he was removed from his post as Indian agent on the flathead. Immediately after leaving, Smead started a new business— selling his knowledge of the reservation to eager homestead seekers and railroad propaganda pamphlets seeking to profit off the impending opening. Smead made most of his money writing articles for magazines and pamphlets that aimed to bring homesteaders from the Midwest and Europe to settle the newly accessible lands in Montana. And in one of these articles, he gives a darkly accurate foreshadowing of what's to come on the Flathead and where we're headed in the rest of the show.
0: I see a spot far away Nestled in the hills in a land that I love Stormy weather may come, but whether the
1: skies... The Flathead the Reservation will, when opened to settlement, furnish land for thousands of settlers. By labor, industry, and thrift, happy and prosperous homes will be builded. Great mines opened up, adding their quota to the world's wealth. Smelters will be erected to reduce the ores. Sawmills will cut the virgin forest to lumber. Flowering mills will be required to grind the wheat. Cities will spring up to handle the business of this new country. And railroads will be builded to haul its produce to market. Steamers will ply over the great Flathead Lake. And on its shores, summer homes and health resorts will be built. The abundance of fish and game, together with the perfect climatic conditions, make this an ideal spot for camping, hunting, and fishing. The beauty and grandeur of the scenery is unsurpassed in the West. No more lovely country than this can be found, and it will become the favorite resort of the tourist and pleasure seeker.
0: It's not hard to see just what's wrong with me all the time When I tell you I'm homesick, lonesome, and sad There's a deep regret I will never get off my mind Cause I went to Rome, left the only home I ever had I hear a mockingbird down in the little green valley Singing out his heart to welcome me And someone waits by the garden gate down in the little green valley When I get home again, how happy she will be down
1: by a little babbling brook, once more i wander, and in a shady nook, I'll dream the hours away. Land Grab is written and produced by me, John Hooks, along with Matt Newman, and Rory Murphy over at The Mint. Please make sure to subscribe to the show wherever you're listening so you don't miss an episode. If you like the show, please do rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. It really does get more eyes and ears on the show. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at LandGrabPod. A reminder that we are a donor-supported show, so if you would like to hear more, if you would like to know more about these things, if you want more land grab, please, please do consider making a contribution on the website.